Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. At every Olympics, there is one cycling event that stands out above all the rest. You may have seen it. It's the one where a pace setter dressed all in black rides a motorized scooter known as a Derny around and around the velodrome, picking up a bunch of muscled up cyclists on the way. The name of this event is the Kirin, and it's been in the Olympics since Sydney 2000. But it's actually based on a form of track cycling named Kirin that originated in post-war Japan and is what my guest today calls the War on Wheels. Kirin is a gambling sport in Japan, and though it's nowhere near as popular as the national pastime baseball or held in the same high regard as sumo, it is still a multi-billion dollar industry with races taking place up and down the country on an almost daily basis. Joining me today to delve deeper into the fascinating world of Kieran is Justin McCurry, the Tokyo correspondent for The Guardian newspaper and the author of the recently published and incredibly enjoyable book, The War on Wheels, Inside the Kieran and Japan's Cycling Subculture. Justin McCurry, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you and thanks for the kind introduction. So some listeners may have watched Karen races in person. Some may be aware of how big a sport it is here in Japan and some may have seen the Olympic version of the sport being raced at the Tokyo Games this summer or perhaps at Olympics in the past. But for the as of yet uninitiated, could you begin by explaining what Karen actually is? Sure, yeah, it's um, a track cycling discipline the rules are fairly simple and people may have seen this during the, the recent Tokyo 2020 Olympics, at least I hope they did. Uh, so you have uh, between, say, six and nine cyclists, depending on whether it's an Olympic event or a Japanese professional event. And they will spend part of the race jostling for position behind either a motorized derny, which you will have seen in the Olympics, or an ordinary bicycle ridden by a pacemaker. When the pacemaker finally leaves the track, then it's really every man or woman for themselves. There's a, a sprint to the finish and the first rider across the finish line uh, wins the race. And it's a very unpredictable and very exciting form of racing, right? Certainly has been whenever I've had the chance to watch it. But despite it making its name internationally at the Olympics, Karen is actually a type of track cycling that originated in Japan and is an absolutely huge industry here, right? Yeah, although it's only been in the Olympics for the past 21 years, it made its debut in Sydney in 2000. It, the sport itself goes back more than 70 years, and this is where the, the Japan connection comes in. So it was uh, invented by a couple of philanthropic businessmen who had been fighting for the Japanese Imperial Army during the Second World War. They came back. They wanted to make some money for themselves, of course, but they also wanted to do something to help rebuild Japan after the end of the war and basically give people something to go uh, and watch and to enjoy in terms of sport, but also to allow them to gamble some money, some of which was kept by the local governments to to, uh, to rebuild Japan's infrastructure. So the first Keirin race was, was way back in November uh, 1948. It was, I'll be very brief about the about the history, but it was a roaring success. People bet more money than the organisers had could have hoped for. And other local governments around Japan saw this happening and thought, you know what, we, I think we should build our own velodromes and do the same. 
Right. And as I understand it from your book, though, Karen is now far from its heyday, there are still over 40 velodromes across the country and around two and a half thousand riders competing in Karen with races happening on an almost daily basis. Before we get too far into the conversation, though, I did want to ask, do you remember the first Karen race that you ever went to? And, you know, how did you end up hooked on the sport to the point where you wanted to write this book? I do. Yeah, I went to a Karen race and I think it was in Kyoto many, many years ago when I lived in Kansai. And I remember pretty much uh, nothing about it, but I, I wasn't hooked at that point. I'm not sure why, perhaps... Um, you know, work and family and all the rest of it took over, but I wasn't a regular at velodromes by any means. And then I would say that my first proper Karen outing was at the 2016 Grand Prix final, which is a good way to start, actually, because the Grand Prix, which happens on December the 30th every year, is by far the biggest race of the year. The winner of the men's final takes home prize money of a million dollars. Uh, there are usually big crowds. It's just before the, the New Year holidays when people have finished work and they're looking forward to going back to their hometown. So there's kind of a quite a festive atmosphere, a lot of drinking, a lot of gambling. So it's, it's, a, it's a really good afternoon out. There are generally about 11 races a day. So you, they start sort of late morning and end early evening. So I went along. I didn't know how to bet. I didn't know how to read the form. I knew that I knew the rules of the race, but that was pretty much it. And what's the atmosphere actually like at the velodrome when you're there and watching a race? Yeah, like nothing you see elsewhere in Japan, I think is the, the, <laughs> the, the short answer to that. It, this, this particular race or Grand Prix was at Tachikawa, so in the sort of western Tokyo suburbs. Uh, it's quite an old velodrome, as are a lot of them. Yeah, they were built sort of during the post-war period. Some of them have been knocked down and rebuilt or, or refurbished. But, you know, generally they're quite unwelcoming places, a lot of concrete, um, usually in the sort of quite featureless suburbs of, of major cities rather than in the middle of the cities themselves. And you see a sort of a side of Japanese society that you don't usually encounter, um, you know, going about your daily business. 80 to 90 percent of the spectators were men. A lot of them were clearly over over 60, you know, judged by the way people were dressed. You know, some of them you know, didn't appear to have a lot of money. Uh, a lot of them were drinking. A lot of them were swearing. A lot of them were smoking. And there were, I mean, I don't want to sort of characterise this as a sort of a, a collection of, of, of sad, re retired men who have nothing better to do with their time, because there were a lot of younger people, there were couples, there were even some families who'd taken their kids along. But by and large, it, it appeared to be a, a, a demographic that I hadn't really encountered in other parts of my life in Japan, and that which made it all the more interesting, of course. I've only been to one race and it, I, it was at the Ormia Velodrome, which was fantastic to watch. A, I think the uniforms that the riders wear are absolutely brilliant. They kind of roar around looking. It's almost like uh, the old classic iPod adverts in terms of the colour scheme as they race around the track. But my main takeaway from it was, you know, if you believe that Japanese people don't swear or get angry, the Velodrome <laughs> is absolutely the place to see people kind of absolutely furious and quite brilliantly so oh yeah it's fantastic i mean you can learn a whole new japanese vocabulary which you probably wouldn't <laughs> want to repeat in polite company but yeah you're right if you are under the impression that japanese people were in, you know innately polite and 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 took their losses um you know in in a sportsmanlike fashion then 
you'd be very wrong and you, you'd see proof of that at, at a Kirin velodrome. But I, I just found the whole experience really absorbing and enjoyable and resolved to write the book, you know, which eventually took me around several velodromes across Japan and um, interviews with, with all sorts of people, including the punters uh, that I'd met during my, my trip to Tachikawa. So you mentioned a little bit about the history and how it started in November of 1948 and it started down in Kyushu, uh, the southernmost of Japan's four main islands. And it's now grown into this absolutely huge industry. But the other thing you mentioned, obviously, is the gambling side of it. Um, so what is Kirin's relationship to gambling and how is Kirin funded? Yeah, you can't really have a proper discussion about Kirin without mentioning gambling. Um, it's been part of the Kirin scene right right from the, the get-go. So that the whole idea behind building this new velodrome in Kokura, now Kitakyushu, down in Kyushu in, in, after the war, was to uh, enable people to gamble and to obviously use some of the money to pay the riders and pay the staff, but also to set aside a portion of, of the takings from gambling to invest in local infrastructure and also in, in, in social welfare projects as well. The percentage is very small, but obviously people eventually were gambling such huge sums that actually we're, we are talking about quite big sums uh, of money. Right, and I think at its, at its absolute peak, there was about 1.9 trillion yen being spent a year in on gambling on the K-Rin. But K-Rin's link to gambling has also led to some of its most serious problems in the sport right, at least early on in its history. Yeah, so gambling's been part of Kirin right from the start. It's also been partly responsible to, for some of the biggest threats to Kirin's very existence over the years. And, you know, in the 1960s in particular, and in Tokyo, there was a big backlash uh, against gambling. You know, local left-wing leaders thought it was a, an unofficial tax on the poor, mm. Um, there were a rise in, in, in women's groups and uh, teachers' associations, residents' associations who thought that gambling was a, a terrible influence on children and they didn't want velodromes on their doorstep, for one thing. And the early days of Kirin were blighted by crowd violence. The riders themselves were not what you would call professional. A lot of them were old soldiers or returning soldiers, I should say, who could see Kirin as a way of making a, some some quick money. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of race fixing. There was inevitably the involvement of the Yakuza, Japanese organised crime. So Kirin's association with gambling is, it's really sort of Janus faced. There's this, this philanthropic side where some of the money is reinvested in worthy projects, but also there's this inevitable association with the sort of shadier side of Japanese society. So it is really integral to the sport, though. It's not like football, for example, where, you know, you have the Premier League in the UK and then you have a whole load of bookies on the side who build a, have built a gambling industry kind of in tandem to the to the football. It's... It's like very much for Karen, the gambling money is used to give prize money to the riders, to pay for stuff like the velodromes, to pay for the upkeep of the sport as a whole. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right. And the only reason that Karen, along with horse racing, motorboat racing and a form of speedway, they're just those four 
uh, sports that on which it's legal to, to gamble in Japan. The only reason that they continue to survive and, and in some cases thrive is because they're effectively managed by the Japanese state. Um, so there's no private, enter- not well, very little private enterprise uh, going on here. The Keirin Association, which oversees the sport, is effectively a part of the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry. Mm. So the state's involvement has been very direct right from the start. And this has always been used as a reason for allowing gambling to, to continue, even though gambling is theoretically illegal in Japan. And so what is the reputation of Keirin now? I think it depends on who's being asked. So people over a certain age will remember the, the, the 50s and 60s when, although some of the cycling was absolutely fantastic and huge crowds used to pack into velodromes all over Japan, um, they do have memories of the, so the, the, the shadier side of the sport. It's unfortunate because these days everything is above board. I mean, every effort is, is, is made to ensure that it's clean in terms of gambling and race fixing and all the rest of it. But unfortunately, the association with gambling and and, and the bad old days of the post-war period, that's persevered in the minds of a lot of people. So even today, with Keirin as an Olympic sport, with all the sort of veneer of respectability that it, that it gives the sport because of the Olympics, when I told people that I was writing a book about Keirin, quite often the response would be, oh, yeah, that's sort of the old guys who go and swear and gamble and all the, what what do you want to write about that for? That's, uh, you know, it's not it's not particularly wholesome. It occupies an uneasy place in in, um, in within Japanese society, which is which is a great shame because it's it's such a fantastic sport. But it's sort of struggling to make its way clear of the shadows, if I could put it that way. You mentioned there some of the ways in which the sport has become more above board. And I think a lot of that stems from uh, something you write a lot about in the book, which is the Japan Keirin School, which you kind of refer to as this monastery where hopeful riders, you know, cloister themselves away for about 11 months of the year, kind of in the shadows of Mount Fuji. And through that process, they become a professional Keirin rider, or at least the uh, the more talented of the applicants do. So what is that process like? And, and did you have a chance to go and, and visit that school? Yeah, I did. I went a few times. But I spent several days at the Japan Keirin School, which I should note uh, in case anyone from the Keirin Association is listening, is now uh, referred to as the Japan Institute of Keirin. This was all part of an attempt over the last couple of years to sort of modernise the Japan Keirin School. But even with those those minor changes, it is very much... Um, like a monastery, a very Spartan existence for the men and a smaller number of women who who managed to qualify uh, or managed to gain admission to the Keirin School every year. So, as you said, they spend 11 months at the Keirin School near Mount Fuji, not far from Izu Velodrome, which is where the uh, the recent Olympic track events took place. There are two main aims. The first, of course, is to turn these men and women into cycling machines. You know, some of them may have never sat on a uh, a track bicycle before once you're in yeah it's a daily slog of weights and hour upon hour on rollers cycling up the hills around Mount Fuji the school itself has several of its own velodromes so there's a lot of time spent on the velodromes there's one part of the complex that I, I nicknamed the wall it's just a straight <laughs> a straight road that continues for about 
I, I don't know, about 50, 60 metres, I guess. And then this very, very steep climb at the end. And of course, remember that they're on um, fixed wheel bicycles. So the pedals are always turning and there are no brakes. Both ways you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they have to cycle to the top and then go back down again with their pedals revolving at a rate of knots and then cycle back up again and they they repeat this uh, until uh, they can barely walk so it's a really it's a really tough uh, existence did you have a go on the hill i didn't know the day I, the day i was there it was absolutely chucking it down with rain um, the day we went to the hill anyway so not even the the trainees were were using it that day which was a real shame but i was reliably informed that um at the top there's sort of a uh, a flat area surrounded by bushes and I was told that the bushes come in quite handy for the trainees to to throw up in um oh, in in, in <laughs> with some degree of privacy before they uh, before they try their next ascent um but the the other side of life in at the Karen school is they spend a lot of time in the classroom and this is to learn the rules of the race yeah exactly it's first of all to learn the rules of uh, of the race and they also learn about the history of gambling and how people gamble on Karen races uh, but there, there's also, a lot, you know, the, the, the few lectures that I attended, on one occasion, they, they invited a former professional back to, to give a guest lecture. And he spent most of the time reminding the trainees of how to be good citizens. So the, again, this is to protect Karen's reputation against potential attacks from people who say it's corrupt, it encourages uh, gambling, it leads to gambling addiction and all the rest of it. So you will you'll be very unlucky if you ever approached a, a professional Karen rider uh, for a chat or an autograph or a photograph who said, no, you know, go away, come back later. They're usually uh, incredibly approachable, incredibly polite and very keen to to protect the reputation of their sport. And that's something they learn at the Karen School. And I think one of the things you'd probably want to uh, talk to any Karen rider you might meet about is his or her bike, because the bikes are an essential part of the riding culture um, and really important in keeping the races controlled and fair. And I think if you're used to watching road cycling events like the Tour de France or the track cycling at the Olympics or the World Championships, every time you see those events, there seems to be huge advancements in the tech used for the races. But then you pivot to watching the Japanese Karen and they seem to be riding on bikes and with gear that looks straight out of the first race back in 1948, <laughs> all of which is standardised to very exact specifications to keep it fair. But yeah, I was wondering, how is the bicycle industry around Karen maintained and how important are the bikes to the culture of Karen? Yeah, that, that's that's a really good question. And I mean, one of the roles of Karen is also to um, to promote the Japanese bicycle industry. And in fact, a, I was talking about money being set aside for, for infrastructure projects, but a, a bit of money is also set aside to help the Japanese cycling industry. And I think mm. that's partly why they've persevered with these very old-fashioned looking bicycles over the decades. I mean, like you say, they have really barely changed since the 1950s. But I think that's all part of the charm. Um, I mean, they're, they're heavy. Actually, they don't look unwieldy because they're, they're stripped down bikes. There are no brakes, you know, there are no gears. It's just a frame, handlebars, uh, saddle and, and pedal, strap pedals. And of course, they're beautifully well polished the whole time as well. They are things of beauty. Yeah. And each rider has a very close relationship with his or her favourite frame builder. Uh, of which I would say there are probably about 30 uh, at the moment, ranging from big companies like Panasonic to 
the bike builders that interested me most while I was writing the book. And these are the grizzled old guys, some of them former <laughs> cyclists, a lot of them who did apprenticeships in places like Italy. And, um, you know, they've got sort of dimly lit workshops in southern Osaka. In the, this is the case uh, with, with Nagasawa, who's one of the frame builders. It's very much like watching watching an artist at work rather than somebody rather than a regular engineer or mechanic who's just uh, going through the motions uh, I, I have my own frame and um very nice it's, uh, it, it with 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 brakes because i ride it around tokyo and um you know i can and I, i've got sort of a regulation saddle and all the rest of it and i can i can see the appeal one cyclist described to me that he, he never feels like he's on a bicycle when he's riding a Karen frame he feels like he's in a bicycle if that makes any sense and i i, I think if you're a cyclist you might understand uh, how, what that feels like So a good part of the latter part of your book focuses kind of on the slow decline of Kirin in Japan and just some statistics I pulled from the book. Um, I think gambling receipts peaked in 1991 with 1.7 trillion yen worth of money spent on, on the sport in that year. But by 2016, that had fallen to only 630 billion yen, which is still a huge amount of money. It's still, you know, six billion US dollars equivalent, but a substantial decline over that 25 year period. So I'd kind of like to focus this part of the conversation on the future of the sport. And I think one of the most interesting parts of it is that we do have this Olympic version, Kirin, kind of running in tandem to the Japanese Kirin. But at the same time, we don't really see much in the way of Japanese success in the Olympic version. Um, so how has the Olympic version of Kirin, which has been going since 2000, kind of contributed to the popularity of Japanese Kirin, or has it not really since it's been introduced in the Olympics? That's a really uh, great question, and there's a, there's a lot sort of tied up in the answer, so I'll, I'll try to keep it simple. You'd think, given that Japan has this long history of, of Kirin, about 40 velodromes uh, the you know, from Fukushima up in the north right down to, to southern Kyushu, a pool of professional riders. I think there are about 2,300 professional riders of, of varying levels. You'd think that Japan would sort of be dominating Olympic Keirin, um, but in fact, the opposite has been the case. Mm. One of the reasons for that is that the, the domestic scene can be so lucrative that a lot of riders just don't want to commit the time to training for the Olympics because it would mean taking time away from the professional circuit. They would see their earnings reduce, dramatic, decline dramatically in some cases. So you kind of potentially have the same problem as in football again, where there's more money to be made from the clubs than playing for the international teams. So, so you feign, in, feign injury when that international friendly comes around, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a difficult problem to overcome. You know, what plans are in motion from your discussions you've had with people at the uh, at the Kieran School and other people in the the Kieran scene? You know, what plans what plans are in motion to try and turn the sports decline around? Yeah, quite a few plans. Um, some of which are really encouraging. 
I mean, a few years ago, they introduced something called Midnight Kairin, which, uh, despite its name, refers to a meet that finishes sort of late at night, around half past 11. But the idea behind Midnight Kairin was to encourage, uh, and again, we're talking about gambling here rather than sort of a pure sport, uh, but it was to encourage more people to gamble online. And that that's actually uh, succeeded in, first of all, stabilising gambling receipts over the last few years. And then I think recently there has, in fact, been a slight rise. So we're not going back to the heady days of the late 80s, early 90s. But um, I think the decline appears to have been arrested for the time being. Um, and then in 2012, the Kairin authorities reintroduced women's Kairin in the form of girls Kairin, uh, which again, I think, managed to uh, take the sport to a, a, a wider, uh, more diverse audience. And there have been some some attempts to modernise the Kairin school, so not just changing the name, but the, the, there, are, there's a, there are more relaxed rules on haircuts now. When I went, <laughs> when I went, um, when I was researching my book, the, the the guys had to have skinheads basically, and the women weren't allowed to grow their hair beyond a certain length. But those have been relaxed a little as long as their their hairstyles don't interfere with their helmets, which are obviously mm. an important safety feature, then I think they're they they've got more freedom as far as their their appearance is concerned. They're allowed to use their mobile phones once a week before mobile phones were banned. You know, if they wanted to make a call home to mum and dad, they had to wait until a Sunday evening and use a, a public phone. Very, very Spartan. Very, existence. very Spartan. Um, but um, so there, there, there are, there have been changes, but I think the biggest challenge is, you know, the, the biggest challenge for Kairin is the same as it is for a lot of sectors of Japanese society and the Japanese economy it's operating in a uh, in a country with a shrinking and aging population. So I think if the Japan Kairin Association really wants Kairin to survive and prosper for another 70, 73 years, it start to, it's got to start looking beyond Japan's borders. In the book, you write a little bit about that in terms of, you know, there was briefly a partnership with the South Korean Kairin League. And, you know, in terms of Every year they kind of have guest cyclists from overseas as well. Chris Hoy probably being the biggest name to have ever competed in Japanese Kairin from abroad. But do you think we will see a, a much wider internationalization of the sport? No, probably not. At least not not for not for a while. I think once the obviously the coronavirus pandemic has has disrupted a, a lot of uh, the Kairin season. But I think once the pandemic is under control, um, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later, that they may reinstate the Nikkan Kairin, the, the bi biennial competitions between South Korean riders and Japanese riders. That would be really, really good and very welcome. And they would start inviting uh, individual foreign riders, six men and six women, to come and compete in Japan for a few months every year that would be good but i think one thing that people within kairin are pushing for is is an international league of some sort so where, where mm. you would have the best european and north american and australian riders competing against the best riders from japan south korea china malaysia and that this would be somehow arrangements could be made for people to gamble on these races internationally so you wouldn't have to be in japan there is a gambling problem in, in japan um, mainly sort of centered on pachinko um, but also on on sports gambling so i'm not encouraging anyone to gamble but what i do hope is that the kairin authorities do far more to to get younger people families and uh, and women in particular to go to velodromes that they make them 
nicer places to spend an afternoon mm. and that they can go not necessarily to gamble but just to watch this incredible and unpredictable sport that their own country invented uh, you know more than seven decades ago mm. is there a version of caring in the future you know if they don't internationalize if they can't pick up the receipts from the gambling where actually it disassociates itself from the gambling and becomes a much more sport focused spectator sport you know for example now if you go it's what 100 yen 150 yen to get into the velodrome because they're hoping you're going to spend your money on on the gambling right yeah. um but you could also imagine a version where they start getting a lot more sponsorship in it actually costs you know two thousand three thousand yen in terms of tickets to go and watch an afternoon's racing and it kind of transforms and and really splits from the gambling side of things so do we end up with a version that is more like football in the UK where there might be a gambling industry on the side, but really it is all about the sport as the main spectacle? Yeah, it's it's a nice idea, but I just I just can't see it surviving without without gambling. Um, although cycling is obviously, I mean, bicycle ownership is is very high in Japan, and cycling. If you go, we know if you go and have a pedal along the Arakawa River in Tokyo on a Sunday afternoon, it's also an in, incredibly popular sport as well. But mm. it is a minority sport, and I just don't think uh, we can expect track cycling to to survive on sponsorship money alone. I think gambling will all, always have to be um, a part of it. I think the, the real challenge is to make the sport more international, more open, and the women's sport has to be taken far more seriously. If those two things happen, then I'm going to be optimistic, I think. And final question for people who may be interested in watching a race for the first time, assuming they're based in Japan, where should they begin? Yeah, um, I, obviously, I know that listeners are spaced throughout Japan. But, um, you know, if you're in Osaka, you've got Kishiwada, which has just been refurbished. Uh, if you're in uh, Hokkaido, you've got Hakodate. If you're in Kyushu, you've got Kokura, of course, where it all began. But assuming that a lot of people live in the Tokyo area, you really are spoilt for choice. So you could go to Matsudo, uh, to Tachikawa, which we mentioned earlier. Um, you said you've been to Omiya, which isn't that far away. There's Kawasaki, Odawara, Hiratsuka, you know, all within easy reach. Um, so I would just go to the Japan Keirin Association website, look at the calendar. There's a race on pretty much every day of the year somewhere in Japan. Um, just find the race that's happening near you. Take money for a drink and a few sticks of yakitori and maybe a bet. And I would be very surprised if you didn't come back uh, having had an absolutely fantastic afternoon watching Karen And a copy of uh, Justin's book to help you understand what's going on. <laughs> and take a copy of my book so you know what's going on, yeah. I'm terrible at self-promotion, aren't I? <laughs> Justin, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Thanks very much, Oscar. It's been, been a real pleasure. Thanks to my guest today, Justin McCurry, and his book, The War on Wheels Inside the Kirin and Japan's Cycling Subculture, is out now. A link is, of course, in the episode notes. If you can believe it, mine and Justin's first email about making this episode was all the way back in February of 2020, over a year and a half ago now. And our recording has just been delayed over and over by the pandemic, so it's brilliant to finally have Justin on the podcast and have the chance to talk with him about this fascinating topic. Karen is great fun to watch and it's a really cheap day out as long as you're not looking to gamble too much so I'd definitely encourage you to go if you can. Most stadiums are also open air which makes it about as pandemic friendly as you can get for a spectator sport. A quick moment to say this is episode 100 of Deep Dive, episode number 100. I can't 
quite believe we've made so many. And I just want to say thank you so, so much for all the support from you, our listeners, and everyone involved with making this show. It's always a real pleasure for me talking with our guests each week, and I hope you enjoy listening to Deep Dive as much as I enjoy making it. That's it for this week's episode. If you have enjoyed it, throw a review our way on your favourite podcasting platform. There will be no new episode next week, but we should be back the week after that. Until next time, as always, Odskare Summer. Thank you.